Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. here, especially if it's your first time here. Um, seriously, you could be literally sleeping in from the game last night, which is super annoying and frustrating. Um, or you could be at brunch and you chose to be here and that's awesome. There's water, donuts, and coffee in the back. Help yourself. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 13 through 15. Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip open. If you don't, there's some around the room. Um, or we'll have scripture on the screens if, if you don't have one, so no worries there. Um, but we have been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to keep doing that. Um, we walk through books of the Bible here in college ministry. If it is your first time here or if you want to catch up, uh, we record them on YouTube and on our podcast. Uh, you can find it at Christ Chapel College. Um, they record them live too, so that's really great. Um, but here's what we're doing. We're picking up in chapter 13. We've got three chapters to cover. But before we do, um, I was studying for this sermon um, and reading some stuff, and I came across two different psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And both of them, in the very very first verse, start with this. Um, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Two different psalms, they say the same exact Thing. Now, I could bet that most of us in here could all read something like that and nod our heads and be like, yep, that's true. Um, it is a foolish thing to n- say there is no God, or maybe you don't think that's a foolish thing. But regardless, um, I don't think I would call myself a fool. Hopefully you wouldn't either. And if you do, then this sermon's for you or B. We can work on some positive self-talk later. Um, but I wouldn't consider myself a fool. But when I look at my life, um, my thoughts my desires and my living all deny, resist, and reject God all the time. And I see, like, what this psalm is getting at is a very, very subtle reality. It's not making a statement about the intellectual capacity of an atheist who's making an argument that there isn't a God. No, what this psalm is getting at is a much more sobering and searching tone and reality. You see, I can say to you that God is first in my life that he's the ultimate priority. I only want to be concerned with him. I only want to do things his way and be led by him. I can even tell myself that. I can even tell myself I believe it. And yet, when the rubber meets the road in my life, I so often turn to my own power and my own wisdom. And my dreams, my anxieties, life's ups and downs, they all reorder and elevate myself above God. God moves to second place in my life. And then before you know it, even if my intentions are are good, I'll put someone else, another person, or another thing above God. Um, And he goes down even one more rung down the ladder. And here's the reality that I want each of us in this room to come to grips with as we begin today. Um, When God is not first in our lives, he rarely remains second. He quickly drops down to third, then he lowers down to fourth, And then it keeps going down one rung after the other until eventually he's totally forgotten. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
And what it all really comes down to is this. We all give our hearts to something. The question is just simply to who and to what. The question is what takes the place of God in our lives? Because something takes priority. Something takes priority in our lives, but who is it? What is it? When the rubber of our desires and our anxieties hit the road of our lives, how do we respond? Do we do things our way and do what seems best to us according to our own power, our own wisdom, or do we follow the way of Jesus and do things God's way? That's a very simple question. It might seem bottom shelf to you, but I think it is absolutely crucial to our life um, and also to what we're studying today because the result of one leads to a foolish destruction. The result of the other leads to a life of wholeness and abundance. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three different scenes, one in chapter 13, one in chapter 14, and one in chapter 15. And they all are centered around this guy named Saul. Now, if you haven't been with us or if you need to, uh, to jog your memory, Saul um, is an Israelite and he is the new king over the nation of Israel. You see, the nation of Israel is not used to having kings. They've had prophets in the past and judges and stuff like that. And they're looking at all the other nations, nations around them who all have kings and they say, we want to be like them. We want what they have. We don't have it. Can we please have a king? God, you're not enough. We don't want you as our king, even though you say you are. We want someone who's real, who we can look at, who we can touch, and who we can follow. So they pick Saul. And Saul's like a good-looking dude. He's kind of classic, like what you would think of as a leader. Um, probably looks a lot like Marcus, if you ask me. Um, but here's, here's what happens. Just to set the scene. I'm going to give you the scene, and then I'm going to kind of title the scene for you. So hopefully you note-takers love this. Um, it'll help you kind of stay organized and follow along. Scene one, I'm calling Saul's timing. And to set the scene for you, um, back in chapter 10, you don't have to flip there, um, Samuel, the prophet who this book is named after, gives Saul very specific instructions. Um, he gives him very specific directions um, that say, hey, you are going to go to the garrison of the Philistines and you're going to defeat them. You, Saul, I need you to do that. Now, what happens in the beginning of chapter 13 is we see someone does go to the garrison of the Philistines and defeat them, but it's not Saul. It's his son, Jonathan. And his son, Jonathan, Jonathan defeats them, which is great, but then you see Saul take all the credit. Um, even though it's his own son, you'd think he'd be proud of him, um, but he takes all the credit, and then here's what happens. Uh, the Philistines, who are this great army, they hear about it, and they're mad. Um, I wrote in my notes that they're ready to throw hands. They're about to go to war. And so it's a big war, and that's kind of the setting that we're in. The Philistines are a great, Wyatt laughed at that, which is good. Um, they're a big army, and the Israelites are a smaller nation. And so the, all the Philistines just rally up, they gather together, and they're about to go um, to Israel to, to fight. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 13, verse 6. It says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the Philistine army surrounding them, for the people were hard-pressed, that's something I want you to notice, the people, the Israelites, hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. So I want to stop right there. I wanted to start off with that verse because I want you to notice a pattern. You're going to see it here, you're going to see it again in just a second, but you notice that word hard-pressed. It says they're in trouble, they're intimidated, they're afraid, they're scared, they're stressed out, they're in trouble, this great army is coming upon them, and so they're hard-pressed, and what do they do? They hide. The natural human response to stress, fight or flight. The Israelites choose flight. And the reason the 
I highlight this is because, like I said, we're going to pick up on a pattern, and I think it's very important context for when we look at how Saul makes the choices that he does. But then B, I think it's just a fascinating observation. Um, it echoes the story in the garden. In the very beginning of the, the, the Bible, Genesis 3, um, God had created Adam and Eve, if we're familiar with those two characters of the Bible, to be in a flourishing, perfectly whole, perfect relationship with God. He gives them one command, don't eat of, the, of this certain tree. And what do they do? They go get the fruit of that tree. They eat it. They realize they're naked. They're ashamed. And it says that they see God or hear God walking towards them in the garden. And it says that they're afraid. They're stressed out. And so they hide themselves. And I just want to point that out because I think it's a fascinating observation. Chew on that. Take it for what you will. Um, I think it's, you see that pattern. You're afraid and you hide. Now, just one more piece of context before we keep going. Back in chapter 10, like I said, Samuel's laying out all these instructions for Saul. Um, he tells him, you know, to go to the garrison, defeat the Philistines. We already see Saul not do that. And then he also says, hey, you're going to be in this situation where the Philistines are going to be around you. And when you are, I need you to wait for seven days. Don't do anything. Just wait for me. I will be there in seven days, and then I'm going to help you out. But you, I need you to not do anything before I get there. And so that's very important. So with that said, pick up with me, chapter 13, verse 8. It says, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal yet, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. This is what Samuel was going to do. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, just like he said he would, seven days later. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord yet. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. I did what you were going to do. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Let me unpack kind of what's going on. Again, Samuel gives very specific directions to Saul, and he says, I need you to wait. Don't do a thing. I will be there. Trust me. And Saul gets really stressed out again, really anxious. It's day seven. Samuel's not quite there yet, and he jumps the gun. He knows exactly what Samuel's going to do. He knows what's to be expected. He knows Samuel has a plan. But instead of waiting an extra hour or however long it was for Samuel, he goes ahead and takes matters into his own hands. He loses his patience, and he chooses to do things in his own timing. And Samuel shows up right after he's done and goes, what are you doing? I gave you one job, I gave you one command, and you botched it. You're a fool. And to summarize that, Saul, again, did exactly what he was supposed to do, but he jumped the gun. He lost patience, took matters into his own hands, did things according to his own timing, and he's called a fool for it. And when we see him do something very similar, again, in chapter 14, um, he realizes he's in another bind, and he starts to seek the guidance of the Lord, um, and then quickly changes his mind and again acts according to his own timing, which leads me to scene number two. Um, we're going to look at Saul's wisdom. This is chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed again that day. 
So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of his army, none of the people, had tasted food. Again, you see that pattern. You see hard-pressed. They're stressed. They're in trouble. They don't know what to do, and Saul just reacts. The, um, he he <clears throat> reacts and makes another foolish decision in his own wisdom. He tells them not to eat. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for they feared the oath. But Jonathan, Saul's son, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff uh, that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So again, recap this. Saul essentially orders his army not to eat. And even though that there's like a lot of food and a lot of honey, Pooh Bear would have been in dream world here. um, Even though there's a lot of food in abundance and available to them, they are essentially just starving themselves to obey Saul's order. And again, it's an order made out of a stressful reaction. Um, Now, Jonathan doesn't hear the order, um, and he just has an absolute heyday with this honey, right? Um, And it says his eyes became bright, which all that means is his strength and his energy is renewed. He's revitalized. Um, And so afterwards, when Jonathan finds out that uh, the order was not to eat, he thinks it's an absolutely dumb idea. He says this honey is going to give us the strength and the energy that we need to keep on fighting the Philistines. And yet here we are, starving ourselves for no reason. And then the story goes on, verse 31, the Israelites fight the Philistines and they actually win, which is great. And it looks exciting. But then because they're so hungry, they take all the livestock that the Philistines had and they slaughter them on spot and eat them raw. It says that they eat them with the blood, which if you're an Israelite is a big no-no. They had very specific cleansing rituals for their food to be Um, They didn't want to eat anything unclean. And so here they are, slaughtering animals on the spot, eating unclean animals with the blood, as rare as it gets. Um, Verse 36 goes along. Saul seeks God after this victory. God doesn't give give him an answer. And then Saul automatically points the finger at his son, Jonathan. He blames Jonathan and assumes it's his fault for eating the honey. And so he sentences him to death. I have such a hard time with that word, sentences. Did I say it right? Yes, I think I did. Okay, y'all are like, what are you doing? Um, He literally condemns his son to die, his innocent son who just had honey, and it was like what his army needed. He assumes that the reason God isn't answering him is because of his son, not even recognizing it's because he led his own people into sin. Um, Now, this is picking up in verse 43 of chapter 14. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? He just had a great victory. Far from it. As the Lord lives, 
There shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines go to their own place. Let me summarize this. Saul's wisdom, which is actually just a foolish reaction and not wisdom at all, almost leads to him senselessly executing his own son, who is innocent, didn't do anything wrong. It was something that Saul himself was responsible and guilty for. Thankfully, the people realize how foolish he is being, and they bail Jonathan out. Now, we'll kind of circle back to this later, so we're going to move on to scene number three, which I'm titling Saul's Partial Obedience, and this takes us to chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you, Saul, king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people, numbered them, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, another people group, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, leave them unless I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all of the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and then Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is just east of Egypt. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to, de to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy those. All that was despised and worthless, they did devote to destruction. Long little passage, and before we continue on with looking at, at Saul, I want to address the elephant in the room that some of y'all might have caught and might be raising an eyebrow to after just reading a passage like that. Did God just command a mass genocide? He said, kill, wipe out all the Amalekites, devote them to destruction, all that they have, do not spare them, but kill every man, every woman, every child, every infant, every ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. In this passage, we see God order Saul to completely wipe out and destroy the Amalek nation. Every bit of it. Don't leave anything behind. So I want to highlight this because that's a good thing to wrestle with, and we're going to wrestle with it. And we're going to wrestle with this by reminding ourselves of truth, of who God is, then looking at the context of this situation, and then the overarching story of Scripture um, here. And know that this, what I'm about to say, probably might spark a hundred other questions and a hundred other conversations, and I can't even hope to capture all of it in this one little, you know, couple minutes. Um, so with that said, if you want to keep wrestling with this um, and have questions, know A, there's no such thing as a dumb question. B, we, Christ Chapel, are not afraid of hard questions. So if you have those and you want to keep talking, we can talk after this. You can DM us. You can find someone on staff, get their number. We would love to keep walking with you and keep the conversation going. With that said, 
let's look at some truth. God is perfectly gracious, perfectly loving, perfectly merciful, and perfectly just. He's all of those things at once. He's not just gracious sometimes and then just the other times, or merciful sometimes and then just the other times. He's all of those things all at once, all the time. That is who he is. He's not like us. Um, That is part of why he is perfect. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Second, here's some context. The Israelites and the Amalekites have some history. There's a lot of bad blood between the two, and honestly, the Amalekites instigated all of it. That's what you see. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. They attack the nation of Israel time and time again, and they want to completely wipe them out um, and destroy them. Every man, every woman, every child. So they, the Amalekites, are viewed as an existential threat to the Israelite uh, nation. They're viewed as an existential threat to them and to the covenant promise of God to bless the whole world through the nation of Israel. You see, God chose Israel as his people who he was going to use to restore all of his creation um, through to a right relationship with him. But ultimately, the other thing you need to know is that the Amalekites have fully rejected God. Um, And that is very important. And lastly, let's look at the overarching story of Scripture. God created us to be in a relationship with him, a relationship marked by things like wholeness, harmony, joy, peace, um, and even partnership with God himself in stewarding the rest of his creation. Then sin enters the picture, destroys all of that. You see, sin is not something you do on a list of immoral behaviors. It is a disease, and it is evil, and it brings death, and it brings destruction. That is what sin is, and God hates sin, and God hates evil. Remember, he came to bring life and peace and wholeness and harmony, the total opposite of what sin is bringing. And so God takes sin seriously. In fact, he takes it so seriously that he cannot even bear to allow it to continue. The story of scripture is a story of a God who completely wipes out and completely destroys sin so that his followers, those who have put their trust in him, don't have to experience the penalty of sin, which is spiritual, eternal death. Another couple stories where he does something similar to what we're reading today is um, they're both found in the book of Genesis. Two other stories that I want to give you. Um, The first is the story of Noah's Ark, all of God's creation tainted by sin. All of mankind at the time is living in sin, choosing sin, and choosing to reject God. And so God saves the only righteous people alive, Noah and his family, and wipes out and destroys the rest. The other story is in Genesis 19 when God destroys Sodom, um, which I like to think is the original sin city. It's marked by evil and wickedness and the rejection of God. It is wild stuff goes on there, but God graciously rescues Lot and his family, the only righteous people, um, and gives them a chance to get out. Um, and, And God takes sin so seriously, this is the point that I'm making, that he cannot allow it to continue. He went to great lengths to destroy it and wipe it out. And how did he do that? He did that by sending his own innocent son to a cross on behalf of all of those guilty of sin and evil in the world, on behalf of you, on behalf of me, and all of us here who have sin within us. But unlike Saul, God the Father made this choice in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect justice, and in his perfect love so that we might not be destroyed by sin, but be restored back to a life of abundance with him. 
forever. With all that being said, this is why God orders the Amalek nation to be wiped out. They reject him. They are a sinful people, and he cannot tolerate it. And just like in the other story similar to this, if there's anyone righteous within that group of people, he would have pulled them out and rescued rescued them. And I believe that's why he allows this other people group, the Canaanites, a chance to depart. And they do. And again, there's probably still so many questions that you have. Let's keep talking after this for now. Here's what I want uh, you and I to see as it relates to Saul. The Lord gave Saul very specific instructions. Wipe them all out. Don't leave anyone behind. You're not going to take any of the cattle. You're not going to take any of the livestock. You're not going to leave. You're not going to spare anybody. And Saul disobeys disobeys God by only seeing part of it through. Instead of wiping out all of the Amalekites, he spares a man named Agag. Uh, Agag. Instead of wiping out all of the ox and the sheep and the camel and donkey, he spares the cream of the crop for himself. He seems obedient for sure. He's taking down an entire nation. It is great for the nation of Israel right at the time, but it's only partial obedience. And partial obedience isn't full or true obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And it creates a problem that the Lord is trying to help the Israelites avoid. The descendant of Agog, who Saul spared, one day later organizes a mass genocide against the nation of Israel. And it doesn't look good. Israel is doomed. Um, and we see in the book of Esther, this is where the story is told, they are doomed until this woman named Esther steps in. It's an incredible book. Go read it. Um, it's a story of how God rescued an entire people, the nation of Israel, through one woman, and I'm only highlighting that because it's just my simple little reminder that God elevates women all throughout scripture. Um, anyways, I digress. We're going to keep moving on. Um, here's what I want us to see. We just see Saul's timing. We see his wisdom. We see his partial obedience. None of them look good. Let's look at all of the results of each of these things. If you go back to chapter 13, look at the results of him jumping the gun and getting impatient. It says, and Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then, if you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out another man who is after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the result of him choosing his own timing, acting according to his own clock, is that he's called foolish, and he's told he's going to be replaced. His kingdom is coming to an end. And then, obviously, in chapter 14, the result of him operating out of his own wisdom is that it almost co cost him his son's life, who was innocent. It was unnecessary. Um, that is terrible enough. And then let's look at what happens as a result of Saul's partial obedience in chapter 15 and what we just read. This is chapter 15, verse 10. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And then pick up in 22, it says, Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord. He also rejected you from being king. Third result of chapter 15 is that Saul is absolutely rejected 
by God. That is a scary thing to be rejected by the God of the universe. But Saul rejected him, and so that's how God responds. And this is where I want us to stop um, looking at Saul and start looking at ourselves. We've seen Saul's timing, Saul's wisdom, Saul's partial obedience. None of them result in anything good. Let's look at our timing, our wisdom, and our partial obedience. Our timing. Let me just start with this. Some introspective question. I'm a big reflective guy. <clears throat> How do you respond when you're hard-pressed? Just like in Scripture. Here. They're in trouble. They're stressed out. Again, the natural human response is fight or flight, more often than not. How do you respond when you're stressed out? When you're anxious? When you're worried? When you feel like life is caving in? When you've got seemingly no options? When you're overwhelmed? How do you respond? How often do we say, okay, God, I trust you. I, I trust you to provide security for me. I trust you to provide comfort for me. I trust you to provide good things for me. You say you won't withhold those. You tell me you have plans for me, plans for me to prosper, and you'll work all things out for my good. That's what scripture says. I trust you. And then that moment comes where we feel lack. And then we start to notice everyone else has what we want. We still don't have the boyfriend. We still don't have the job. And then we feel the doubt. God, did you, did you hear me? I said, I, I trust you. Is he going to pull through? And we start worrying. We start getting anxious. And it's at that point that so often we take matters into our own hands and we jump the gun. We grow impatient. We get so anxious that we take things into our own hands and we do things according to our, our own timing and we forget that scripture is littered with verse after verse that says the Lord blesses those who patiently wait for him. And before you know it, we stop waiting. And if I had to bet the result of that, if you are anything like me, is that it never results in anything like security or comfort or peace. It only ever results in more anxiety more worry, more second-guessing, more regret, more doubt. And then when I think of doing things according to my own wisdom, it's the same thing. Those are the only things that get produced. When I think of making decisions out of my own wisdom rather than seeking the Lord, the result is the same. More second-guessing, more doubt, more regret. I didn't do things right. Could I have done things a different way? That was uh, a, a shot and a miss. How often do we let the fear of missing out drive our decisions? How often do we approach our plans with an atheistic mindset, meaning as if God didn't exist um, because we've forgotten about him? We end up getting our wisdom from the world around us, um, from our parents, from our friends, from influencers, from literally anywhere but God, which is what got Saul in trouble. Um, you don't have to flip there, but chapter 12, verse 14 says, this is God talking to Saul. He says, if you obey the voice of the Lord, then it will go well for you. Trust that. And then chapter 15, verse 24, we see Saul so deep in regret that he's confessing that he obeyed the voices of those around him. He was too worried about what others thought. He listened to other people's advice, consulted everyone else but God, and he's in a tight spot, and his life is in a mess, and we are no different. And then I think of our partial obedience. This one gets me, but I think it is so easy for us to be fooled into living partially obedient lives for God. 
You see, the command of Jesus is to love the Lord your God in body, mind, and soul. And we'll for sure love him with our mind. We, we sit down and we'll have our quiet time and we'll pray and we'll listen to a great sermon and a great podcast and be enticed and attracted to the idea of God of, wow, this God is gracious and loving and he accepts me as I am. Yes, I want that. I want to be loved by that kind of God. And so we're enticed by him and, we, and we're down to love him with our mind. But my body, that's another thing entirely. My body's still mine to treat as I want to treat. My body's still mine to please as I want to please. I will not love the Lord with my body. The command of Jesus is to love others and we'll love the people who we vibe with, of course, but not that person, right? We'll love the people who we want to be like and who treat us well and who we respect, but never the person who demands just a little too much energy from us. You see, the command of Jesus is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. And we'll follow him a little bit. We'll follow him a little way down the road. We'll even pick up our cross and deny certain things to feel good about ourselves, to feel like we're doing something, to clear our conscience. But we'll leave even just a 2% or maybe a 1% of our flesh untouched, unaccounted for, and just alive and well. And how often do we compartmentalize and compromise like that? A little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there, a little bit of obedience here, a little bit of obedience there. I'll keep this boundary, but I'll cross all the others. How often do we do that? And before you know it, we're not serving God at all. We're serving ourselves. And before you know it, even though we would never say it out loud or believe it intellectually, our hearts are screaming, there is no God. You see, Matthew 7, verse 21, verses uh, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. The ultimate rejection. Partial obedience is disobedience. So, To wrap up, what does full, true obedience to the way of Jesus look like? Um, There's a million different things we could talk about, um, but just going off what we see in this text today, I want to offer you three things. Um, First one is this. Trust is timing. What does that practically look like? Um, Last week, Zach gave an incredible sermon, and so some of this is pulled from that, but it looks like remembering his character remembering who God is, that he is perfectly gracious. He is perfectly loving. He does have your best interest in mind. He is perfectly just. He's all those things at once. He's a God who will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember that. He has you right here, right now in his hands. He's not forgotten you. You've got to remember that if you're going to trust him and you have to trust those things. It also looks like remembering what he's done in your life remembering what he's done in the lives of the people around you and in the stories of scripture and remember what he will do and what he promises and trust those things and trust that he has you right now. The second thing looks like seeking his wisdom. And how do you do that? Um, just like Saul, it said you can either obey the voice of the Lord and it, will, and it will go well for you or you can obey the voice of the world around you and you'll end up like Saul and it won't result in anything good. So how do you get to know his voice? How do you get to know God? You have to be in this. You have to be in his word. You have to hear it preached. You have to be in it regularly and consistently. This is the living and active word of God. And you cannot know God. You cannot know wisdom without being connected to this. And if you need a really practical place to start, 
the book of Proverbs is filled with the most practical wisdom on earth. And what's nice about it is there's like 30, 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. So it matches up with the calendar. So today is October 1st. You would read Proverbs 1. On October 5th, you would read Proverbs 5. And it's an easy way to get into scripture. Um, The last thing that I want to leave you with is this. Um, Put your sin to death. And all of it. Not just just 98% of it, but all of it. The 2%, the 1%. Just like the Amalekites, wipe it all out. Destroy it all. It is only leading to destruction and your corruption and ultimately to your death. Um, There's this man named John Owen who wrote a great book named Mortification of Sin. And in it, he has a quote that summarizes the whole book. And I'm giving it to you right now. So this is like spark notes at its finest. If you are not killing your sin... Your sin is killing you. If you are not putting to death all of your sin, you might be putting to death 98% of it. There is still 2% left that is alive and well, and it is killing you. It is destroying you. You are either destroying it or it is destroying you. That is the reality. You see, the invitation of Jesus to everyone and his command to those who have put their faith in him is this. Deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up your cross, follow me, do as I did. That's what Jesus says. And what did Jesus do? He took his cross all the way to death. His invitation for everyone, his command to his followers is to go and die, to put your sin to death. And as odd as that sounds, that's what obedience looks like. And as odd as it sounds, it leads to life and life abundant the indestructible kind of life, the life that's marked by harmony and peace and joy and all of those kinds of things. And here's the thing. He doesn't make you carry that cross on your own. Let me leave you with this. In fact, he knew you couldn't carry it on your own. So in his grace, he carried it for you. And in your place, he died on your behalf. He paid for you and the price for your sin. That's how much he wants a life of wholeness for you. That's how much he desires and values you. And then he walked out of a grave three days later, and if you put your trust in him, you receive his Holy Spirit who fuels a life of obedience, who empowers you with moment-by-moment grace to walk in obedience more and more, becoming more and more like Jesus. And you see, that's the thing about grace. Salvation and grace is not about transaction. It's about transformation an ongoing, continual pursuit to look more and more like Jesus. That's what obedience looks like. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and how you love us. We thank you for your word and the fact that um, that is how um, we can get to know you and your heart and your character. Um, Father, I would pray that, um, that you put it on our hearts what true obedience to you looks like in each of our individual contexts and situations. Um, reveal to us where we might not be fully obedient to you, Lord, um, and help us just surrender those things up to you, trusting you in that. Um, on the other side of that is life and life abundant. Father, we need you to do that. We need your spirit to do that. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.